This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What is your advice to somebody who's going through a trauma and they have to rise to the occasion and survive and overcome whatever it is they're going through? I really, the thing that I think we need most is hope. If you hope, it's sort of a belief that you'll overcome. It'll just take some time. You know, one of my favorite person is Ben-Gurion. I don't know if you know, he was the president, the first president of Israel. The okay. very first, the very first. He started, the, he, ma- he made the country possible. And he used to have a saying that I love, things that are difficult to, to accomplish will take some time. Things that are just impossible will just take a little longer. So I, I have that as part of my mental state. And I and the people go through trauma and I say, look, you'll have hope that you will overcome this. It'll just take more time than you expect. You may right. get help than you expect. You may need different things, than, but it's going to happen eventually. And you just have to be patient. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews Podcast. This episode is very special to me and I've actually decided to do it as a two-parter. So this episode is going to be part one and then next week we will run part two. It's such a powerful story that I really felt it deserved two episodes. Today I am interviewing a woman named Tova Friedman. She is one of the youngest survivors of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. She and her mother were actually brought to Auschwitz-Birkenau, I believe when she was only four years old. And here's how the story goes. And this is so incredible to me, especially as a Jewish woman, because when I was Younger, I remember my mother telling me that in her generation, when she was growing up in New York, she actually had relatives who still had numbers tattooed on their arms. And she knew of people who had come back from Auschwitz and various concentration camps around Europe. So her generation was very, very close to World War II and to the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people. And she witnessed it firsthand. So she always wanted me and my brothers to know about the Holocaust, to know about the history of our people. And I remember very clearly from the time I was maybe eight or nine years old, she had me reading uh, Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl and watching various documentaries, obviously things that were age appropriate, but she wanted to make sure that the next generation never forgot. 
the atrocities that happened um, to the Jewish people and to other groups in Europe during World War II at the hands of Hitler and the Nazi party. So this is a really important part of my personal history, but I really think it's a part of our collective human history because genocides are still going on all over the world. The Holocaust was absolutely horrible. And in reading my guest's book, it's called The Daughter of Auschwitz. And again, her name is Tova Friedman. She wrote the book along with a PBS investigative journalist named Malcolm Brabant. So the two of them wrote the book together. Again, it's called The Daughter of Auschwitz. And I am telling you right now, this book is, it's not just a book. It will take you on a journey. Yes, it's a journey that's not always pleasant, Yes, there will be times when you have to put the book down. I know that when I was reading her book, there were times towards the beginning of the book where I could read about 10, 15 pages and then I would have to put it down because it was just, it was heavy stuff. And it's hard to believe that these things could actually happen on this earth, that that evil of this magnitude could exist on this earth. But here's what happened. There was a very interesting thing that happened to me as I was reading Tova's book. About halfway in, all of a sudden, I no longer felt the desire to put the book down and have to distance myself from it. I became so engrossed in her story, in her mother's story, in what she experienced, and I was rooting for her to survive, even though Obviously, I know that she did because she's now 84 years old, but I got so engrossed in her journey. And then when the camp got liberated by Russian soldiers and there was a Russian soldier that she was only six and a half when the camp got liberated and a Russian soldier picked her up and put her up on his shoulders. And she describes a moment where she looked over at her mother and her mother kind of gave her a look to say, yes, we're safe now. It's okay. And she could finally breathe a sigh of relief. And by the way, I'm a parent. I'm sure a lot of people that are going to listen to these two episodes are parents. And with everything going on in the world, we have to explain to our kids mass shootings, uh, a pandemic, a lot of the horrible political polarization and discourse that's happening right now. And we're always so concerned about how to communicate certain things to our kids in an age-appropriate way. And we're, we're so concerned about their mental health. And here's a situation where this woman, Tova Friedman, World War II started, well, excuse me, I should say that Hitler invaded Poland, which is where Tova was born, when she was only two years old, and began a lot of pogroms, including the famous one, Kristallnacht, which was the night of broken glass when Nazi soldiers, SS soldiers, went around shattering glass storefront windows, Jewish businesses shattering the window fronts, looting, stealing property, terrorizing people. They began extorting Jewish families. They began dragging people out of their homes and arbitrarily murdering people to instill intimidation and fear into the Jewish people so that they would comply with a lot of the things that were coming next, including being rounded up and sent to Jewish ghettos, which had horrible unsanitary conditions. People were starving. They couldn't get enough food. And then eventually they were, little by little, they were shipped off to various concentration camps, Auschwitz, Birkenau being one of the most famous, or I should say notorious concentration camps. But 
with the way that we try to protect our children's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health, can you just imagine for a second a two-year-old little girl witnessing these things and then being in a ghetto with horrific conditions. And I'm not talking, I mean, I get it. I'm not talking lower income communities like we see in the, in the United States today. And yes, there are a lot of things that go on where people are not living a quality of life that they deserve to live. And of course, the pandemic shone a light on that and, and we could see a lot of the discrepancies. But this takes it even a step further. I mean, the, these conditions were absolutely horrific. They were not fit for an animal, let alone a human. But can you just imagine for a second being in Auschwitz, a concentration camp, or I should say a death camp at the ages of three, four, five, six, seeing people being hanged, shot, gassed, smelling the odor from the crematorium. I mean, I I could go on and on and on, but here's the good part. Okay. She survived. Her mother survived. Her father survived. They emigrated to the United States in the early 1950s and Tova Friedman went on to build a beautiful life. She got married to the love of her life. She had four children. She has many grandchildren and she now has a best-selling book. And once again, the book is called The Daughter of Auschwitz. It's by Tova Friedman and co-written by Malcolm Brabant. My Story of Resilience, Survival, and Hope. I implore you, pick up this book. It will change your life. With all of that being said, I would like you to sit back and relax and listen to the first part of this interview with Tova Friedman. It will blow your mind. The absolute inspiration and living miracle that this woman is you will be, yes, you'll be filled with emotion, but You'll also be filled with inspiration. I know for me, listening to her story, I have to say that it really made me believe that you can overcome anything. The resilience of the human spirit, you can overcome anything. And like Tova said, it may take a little bit more time than you thought. It may take a little bit more help than you thought, but there is always hope and we can always overcome. If she can, anybody can. So relax, sit back, really zero in because you're going to learn a lot and enjoy part one of my interview with Tova Friedman, one of the youngest survivors of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. Here we go. First of all, I have to tell you, I am so nervous and I've, (laughs) I've done hundreds of interviews. And I, after reading your book, I said, I've got to get this right. This is one of the most important stories I've ever bared witness to. So I just need you to know that. (laughs) Um, And also, oh, thank you. So do you, are you at, are you at home right now? I'm home. Yeah. I'm sitting. You're in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. I want to wish you a happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you. you. 84 is a great age. I recommend it. (laughs) We should all be so lucky, right? You're right. You're right. As somebody who is a Holocaust survivor, how do you feel with each passing birthday? Does each birthday feel like a miracle? Absolutely. I feel 
just so blessed. I consider my my birthday, besides September 7th, um, that in uh, January 27th, 1945, I was liberated. I consider this my birthday. So every year, every so often, I get a birthday card from different people on January 27th. Wow. Liberation of Auschwitz. So in your book, The Daughter of Auschwitz, that was the date you spoke about when the Russian soldiers came in and one of them put you up on his shoulders. Absolutely. And Threw me up in the air. It was just a very jubilant. To take you back to that moment, because I, I'm wondering, when you go through a trauma like you did as a small child for, for so many years, when that moment happened, did you feel a sense of relief or did no. you not feel safe until much I, later? I, it was a sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. I said, well, he's wearing a uniform, but a different uniform. And I looked at my mother and she smiled. So I thought it's safe. Okay. I, you know, he was still a soldier. Right, right. So let's back up a little bit. So as a Jewish woman myself. Are you? Yes, I am Jewish. I know that people can never tell what I am. But um, when I was growing up, my mother taught me the story of Anne Frank. She had me read the diary of Anne Frank. She made sure that I knew about the Holocaust because she actually had relatives and family friends who had the numbers tattooed on their arms. And one thing that I always asked her as a little girl is, why didn't the Jewish people run? Why didn't they escape when they saw that institutionalized and governmental uh, propaganda and prejudice was setting in? Why didn't they leave? And I think that there is a myth of Jewish passivity that happened prior to the Holocaust. So can you dispel that? Yes. For me? That's the exact question I asked my father years okay. ago. Uh, we live. We were living in Danzig, which is the uh, uh, international uh, city. The, the people spoke German there. There was Polish, German, not too many Jews, but he lived there. We lived on the Polish side, which is called Gdynia, a little a town not far away. And I said, after Kristallnacht, and everything else, you saw the writing on the wall. Why were you still in that in that country, in that city? And he said to me, we all thought that this maniac in Germany will either be killed or he will he will not be chancellor. Something's going to happen to him. In other words, the passivity came from this belief. That, like, first right. of all, they, they thought if anybody gets hurt, it would be the men, never women and children, which was just the opposite. The belief just wasn't there that this could happen. You know, it's interesting you say that because as I was reading your book and I'm reading the horrors of, of what happened in the ghetto, in the concentration camp, there's a place in your mind, in your brain that says, this, this can't have happened. There's no way that this could happen on this earth. There's no. So I understand the dissonance. And I think that people don't understand that before something unprecedented happens for the first time, it's exactly. almost like prior to 9-11, would you have ever thought exactly. in a million years? Yeah. Yeah. Would you think that 
3,000 people or something like that? Would you believe that in the middle of Manhattan, people would jump off to their deaths? Right. There were a lot of people who were jumping. Would you believe that? That somebody would, it, 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 the things that happens like that. But okay. the problem in Germany was that, that Hitler, A, first he wrote my Kampf, so that he told people what he was going to do eventually. And then it was happening very slowly. They were taking away our rights and so forth. There could have been a more uh, understanding right. of what the possibilities are. But for some reason, it just, no. Some people were lucky enough who thought of it and left. Not many, but people did leave. My family just did didn't think of it. Did people look at Hitler as the Jewish people who didn't run? Did they just write him off as a nut, as an extremist, as a fringe politician who was never going to gain traction? As as a maniac. And by the time he expelled as a maniac, by the the German Jews especially were very German. They were German first and Jewish second. And they were in politics and in arts, in everything, in everything. And and they just couldn't believe that this country, that they literally loved the country, would do this to them. Mm-hmm. So by the time uh, he began to expel them, it was too late. He was too strong. He grew from something very small. I think of it like cancer. You have one cell that is cancerous, and if you don't cut it out, it kills the body. So it just, by the time people realized, he already was so organized. And I must give you, tell you something else. He had a lot of people helping him. He had the intelligentsia, the intellectuals of Germany being on his side. The the artists, the, the professors, the scientists. That's what's scary. He, he could have done it alone, and he couldn't have done it with simple people. He had, he had the best people in the highly educated German people on his side. So his so, friend grew. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to take you, I want to take you back when, when all of this first started and SS soldiers, which were the Nazi soldiers, were coming into people's apartments, into people's homes. They were taking the elderly and, and killing them. I think that happened to your grandparents, correct? Well, my, my grandmother, because later, yeah, later on, my grandfather, my father's parents were killed like that. Yeah. They took them out and shot and, them. And didn't your father have to take them, escort them to their murder? Yeah, he had to do that. That was his job. He has to escort them. You see, by that time, uh, it was the fear was so great, and the Germans who came 
were so powerful because the first thing they did, they shot people who didn't, who didn't obey something or other. The fear came from the moment they entered the city. And you have to understand, yeah. the Jews were never belligerent. We, mm -hmm. we weren't organized. We weren't organized against that type of terror. We, we were thinking about Israel, about the Bible, study. Who thought of being military? So you're saying it was it was the element of surprise. Absolutely. Right. They came in to Tomas Rabazovetsky, and the first thing they asked was a certain amount of money. I don't remember how much. It's in a book, maybe like a thousand million zlotes. I don't know how much it is in dollars. And it took the community, the elders, there was a committee, to organize it. And if they didn't get it fast enough, they were either beaten to death or shot. It was just like that. Now, these people are very prominent people in the community. Uh, if they were, if they said to the Jewish population, we need that much money to give to the Germans, maybe they will leave us alone. Right. People would do it, but they didn't do it fast enough. So we so, the power immediately. So basically what happened was they would invade a city. They would intimidate through arbitrary murders. They would frighten the people. They would start extorting the Jewish people. They started terrorizing the Jewish people. They started killing the elderly. They killed every, not only elderly, children. But I mean, before you were stripped of your belongings and, and taken to the get, the Jewish ghetto, yeah. it was like intimidation, building on intimidation, building on intimidation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you were only three when when the Nazis invaded Poland, were you three or four? I was younger. No, I was a little bit younger. I was like two. They came in 1940, two years old. I was born in 38, about two years old. And we moved. Uh, we lived in a different city, I told you, in, in, in northern Poland. And then we came to my father and mother wanted to go back in order to be with their parents. Mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a time like that, you want to go home. Some people went to Palestine. I'm not even sure we had the money, but some people saw the, saw the terror right away. But yeah. um, And when we arrived back to our hometown where my parents were born, they already had to go to the ghetto because their families were already behind some wall in the ghetto. So we moved there right okay. away. So what happens when you're you're two years old, you're three years old, you're four years old? Can you process feelings like anxiety, fright, depression? Um, what what were you able to process at that at that young age? No, not fright. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, anxiety, not depression. Right. Uh, my job was one job that I was taught by my mother to be safe. Mm -hmm. I knew that I cannot be seen. So when they came into our room, our little apartment, I was under the table. You see, I knew that I knew from the very from the time I could think at all to obey. Because me, I knew that my mother knew what to tell me that if I listened to her, I would live. I knew life and death. I didn't. I saw shootings. 
mm-hmm. I had screamings. I, I'm not sure I knew what death was, but I knew okay. people won't come back anymore. Right. What's interesting is that as a mother and you as a mother and a grandmother, um, we're always talking about some of the things that are going on in the world. So we've had a lot of mass shootings. We've had a pandemic. We've had a lot of crazy things going on in the world. And there's always the conversation that comes up in the news or even in schools, how to communicate these things to children in an age appropriate way, how to communicate what's going on in the world and not frighten children. And you, from the time you were a toddler, there was no time for that. Your mother had to tell you and teach you matters of life and death and teach you how to stay safe. She didn't have a choice. In mothering your own children and even now in being a grandmother, how has that impacted how you communicated hard things that go on in the world with your children and grandchildren? And when did you feel it was age appropriate to discuss what went on during the Holocaust with your children? I think it's always age appropriate when they ask. Okay. When they saw 9-11 on television. I told them exactly what happened and who were the people who were jumping out to their deaths and why they were jumping to their deaths. And was it better to stay in or go out? And, you know, there, there was some, sometimes you would hear the telephone conversations to their families, the people mm-hmm. trapped. And I talked about that. In other words, I validated life. Okay. But but don't forget, we were in our living room. We were safe. Although my son was right there. He, his job was across the street. So until we got a phone call from him, we were sort of worried. But I validated everything. There was, there was nothing to say. It's no, no, it's nothing. It's only, it go away. I don't do that. I don't do that. Okay. Well, there are certain things in the book that's, that stand out in my mind that I'll never forget. So there is one moment in the book when the children in Auschwitz, I think it was in Auschwitz, were being exterminated because the SS soldiers felt they were of no use, right? So the children were being exterminated and your mother shrewdly hid you. And at one point she had you hide underneath the corpse of a dead woman, right? right? So you were hiding underneath a corpse, yeah, and she said, "Don't move." She integrated my body with a corpse. With a corpse, yeah. And how old were you? Oh, when but that, that happened at the end of the war. I was six and a half. By then, I was six. You were six and, and a half. half. Yeah, yeah. It was just so, a few- so. She said to you, "She said, stay integrated with this corpse. Breathe right. shallowly. She, don't she talk. Don't move." My head in a certain way. She, I know what she was. She was manipulating my body so that my mouth, I'd be breathing into the ground, into the mattress, not up, you know, and that that my my legs were between her, le- the legs of that woman. I, I remember it exactly because she put my body in a position, and I allowed it. Of course, I knew that meant. See, I trusted her a hundred percent, and then right. she, and then she covered up with a blanket. And all that was visible was the, was the woman's head like that, and her hands were on top of the blanket, out, so that she knew the Germans are going to come and check, because they wanted to leave no witnesses, so they were going to right. 
kill anybody that looked dead but wasn't. Okay. So she, she told me not to breathe too much. And so therefore you were spared. And I think, didn't you say in your barracks or in where you were, you were the only child who was spared because your mother shrewdly hid you the way that she did? Because every other child was, was no, murdered. No, not, no. Uh, I don't know what happened to the other children. Um, okay. But, but I did meet a few children after the war. After the war, there were five children that came back from Auschwitz to my hometown out of hundreds. Wow. And at six, did you even feel the fear or the trauma of clinging to a corpse? Or you couldn't, your mind couldn't even go there because you just knew you had to stay alive. It was nothing. What I've seen till at that then, point, a corpse can't hurt you. In fact, right. I want to tell you, the corpse must have died very shortly because she, the lady, a young woman, was still warm. So I clung to her, to the body for warmth. Right. Until, until it became cold. I wasn't scared of the corpse. Wow. This is what people need to understand. You had seen so much. You'd seen people be shot, hung, gassed. You, you smelt the fumes from the crematoriums. Absolutely. The corpse was the safest place. And my mother wasn't far away. You know, and she put you, me you, there. So I knew I was you. And you trusted your mother implicitly Absolutely. because her instincts were spot on. Absolutely. She kept evading danger for you. Her instincts were Absolutely. just so spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. I trusted her 100%. There was another moment where, and th this is crazy to me. I couldn't make sense of this. This was when you talked about, because uh, I heard about this when I was young, how the Nazi soldiers would go through the sh like a flimsy charade of make of letting people think they were going to take showers, and they they lined you up with other kids, and they took you to the gas chamber, and they had you strip, and they gave everyone like a threadbare towel. I don't know why they went through that charade. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it was psychological all the time. Okay. They would say, you just yeah. think there shouldn't be any panic. But well, we were children, but you can imagine if you bring in 500 or 1,000 adults, the panic. Mm -hmm. we, we knew right. we were going to our death, but I'm not sure how much the younger ones understood it. So here's what's so incredible is that you're marched over to the gas chamber, you're stripped down, you're given a towel, you're standing there shivering for what, hours? Hours. because Hours. <coughs> we started when it was light and we came back when it was dark. So then there were, you said there were children crying, whimpering. We were very cold and right. hungry and cold. Although we had a good breakfast when we left, they gave us a real nice okay. meal. And then, and then I heard screaming. They were standing there screaming and yelling. What language? Probably German. I, I didn't. Mm -hmm. Somebody came over to us and said, "Get dressed and go." It's the. I thought they said to me, "Is the wrong barrack?" They made a mistake. It was at the end of the war, and they weren't as organized. 
they were very and, organized you know so th- so this is this is crazy you're lined up to be gassed to death and at the 11th hour you're told just go back to your barracks and but yet you were the only group of children where that happened the other ones were gassed they i the children before me they i know that they were gassed mm-hmm. because i looked into the window when i w- walked out of my barrack at one point i saw that it was empty and i remember going inside because it was so cold and there mm-hmm. was a little jacket of a girl hanging i don't know why she didn't take it with her and inside a pocket were gloves and i said oh, i could use those gloves but i said to myself no she was killed i'm not going to use those gloves i remember that so well you know yeah so that you're not going to exploit somebody else's death and no, take their life i didn't think yeah. like that but i just said i i, I can't I, i can't take those those gloves right but you must have asked yourself a million times why wasn't i marched to my death well, you've never asked yourself that you mean as an adult as a kid as an as an adult have you asked yourself as a, as a child why I, that I, happened no uh we accept it you don't forget I didn't have a real childhood and I mm-hmm. I was born one year before the war so I only knew the war and I knew right. all kinds of things happened if you stood here you'd be killed if you stood here. I heard people talking you know when you were uh, standing outside being counted mm-hmm. appel for hours so sometimes when you stood to the left maybe all the left people to the left are going to be killed something it was like you're in middle of a nightmare and mm-hmm. it, you didn't know what is the right thing where to go with to be safe so that i expected all, all kinds of things happening without reason so right us not being killed was just another thing just another day because they told us they got to do it later. Okay. And it's important for people to know that the Nazis were tr- they were actively trying to cover up their war crimes. They were actively trying to conceal what they were doing, particularly I'm assuming from the Americans, from the British, from the Russians. Not only this, I don't know if you know, <clears throat> they made movies. And the movies show that they have beautiful camps do you know Theresienstadt you know about Theresienstadt that's a camp in Czech Czechoslovakia okay. at that time it was Czechoslovakia and they had people playing chess mhm and cooking and having so they made, they made they made propaganda news reels to make it look like the Jewish Absolutely. ghettos were a wonderful place to be which makes no sense because why would anybody voluntarily leave their possessions leave their home and move to a ghetto it it make it it makes no sense it, none of the well, I want to tell sense. you something the red cross came to Theresienstadt mm-hmm. and the children that day were dressed beautifully and a week earlier they were given lots of food and they put on a play which i i have the play it's a it was at the mm-hmm. book 
and Brett Cross bought it. And they went right. and they said, and they said, oh, there's no killing here. They said, it's just a camp. It was, it's a work camp. People work. Right. And, and, and I think the next week after they left, all of these people were taken to Auschwitz and gassed. So they shouldn't be witnesses. What do you what do you think? Because human beings have a tremendous capacity for love, but human beings also have a tremendous capacity for fear, which can translate into rage, anger, jealousy, violence, right? What do you think leads a human being down the path of fear and ultimately wanting to do harm to other human beings? The belief that if the other person won't be around and take my money, my job, my house, not mine, but will take a house, mm -hmm. I will be better off. It's okay. the taking away of other people's, it's like saying, you know, let's say on my block. Yeah. If the two, two people die, then I have a chance to buy one of the properties that I maybe like better than my house, but I can't buy them unless they're dead. Right. You know, so so I can I can arrange a killing. Mm -hmm. do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. It is the belief that you will be better off if you get rid of the other. Right. Anyway. Financially, emotionally, there'll be more space, there'll be more money, you'll have better choices. That's and, and it and and the, the pull is so strong that you would be willing to destroy other human beings to meet you your need end. a leader to tell you that. Right. You needed a Hitler. You need somebody who who was very charismatic and, mm -hmm. and tell you, listen. This is what's going to be. And you have what's, what's mind-boggling. Why did all these intelligent people, brilliant people, follow a maniac like that? Right. He promised them everything. Sounds he familiar. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a theme that's, that's repeated itself, sadly. So that was part one, folks. If you thought part one of my interview with Tova was powerful, hold on to your seat because you're going to be blown away by part two next week. And by the way, here's the coolest thing. One of Tova's grandsons set up a TikTok account for Tova where she is able to educate a whole new generation of young people about the Holocaust in a really empowering way. It's informative, but at the same time, she really is such a force to be reckoned with. She has such an amazing personality, and it is actually very uplifting. So if you are on TikTok, you must follow her at Tova Friedman. It's T-O-V-A. F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. So on TikTok, follow her at Tova Friedman. Pick up a copy of her book, The Daughter of Auschwitz. Again, it will change your life. I'm not exaggerating. I will never forget this book as long as I live. I hold it close to my heart and it is now a part of my permanent library. So I will see you next week for part two. I'm very proud of this and I hope that you guys are getting a lot out of it and you can 
follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. Go to YouTube, type in Allison Interviews and subscribe. Or if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, subscribe on there. Leave me a review. And we will reconvene next week for part two of my interview with Ms. Tova Friedman. Peace.